please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 25. One of the uh, highlights of our presbytery meeting was during the worship service, uh, there was a candidate for ordination who preached a sermon here from this pulpit, and then during the business meeting itself, right after lunch, another candidate for licensure, I believe, um, preached, and it was just great to be able to sit um, and be fed God's word um, All the teaching elders, in fact, uh, we enjoy um, as often as we can to sit under God's word as well as we enjoy and are grateful for the opportunity to stand and proclaim God's word. Um, As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you be pleased to open our hearts to your word And open your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and to know also what duty you ask your servants and children to do. Father, may your word and spirit have their way with us, not just informing us, but transforming us from the inside out. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 27 of chapter 24, in fact, the whole chapter. Uh, we looked at from an accusation to a testimony. Uh, Paul was standing before the Roman governor of Judea, Felix. Uh, today, he'll be before another governor. Um, as we see, Paul makes his way from Jerusalem to Rome And Paul is indeed, as we heard uh, from our New Testament reading, brought before governors for Jesus' sake to bear witness, to bear witness of the truth of the gospel. Last week, before Governor Felix, we considered the, the words and the actions of the prosecution, the defense, and the judge. And at the heart of the accusations made against Paul, when when the dust settles, at the heart of the accusation is that he's a Christian. He's departed from our religion, and he's a danger, not only to our religion, but he's a danger uh, to the whole world, the Roman world. And at the heart of Paul's defense, we saw last week, is a testimony that he is indeed a Christian. He has faith in Jesus Christ. Paul points out in his defense that we worship the same God, we have the same belief, we have the same hope of the resurrection of the dead, and we have the same aim, to have a clear conscience before God and man. We also saw a decision not made by the judge, but rather delayed. And a decision not made but delayed is indeed a decision. Indecision is a decision you were deciding not to make a decision. And yet, even though initially we think that that might be bad, we see that God uses it because this long delay that Paul is given. He bears witness to the gospel. We read about he speaks about faith in Jesus Christ because Paul is determined to continue the ministry that he has received from Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we saw last week that an important topic or three important topics that Paul um, spoke about when talking about faith in Jesus Christ before uh, Felix and his wife was righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. And you may have 
remember that there's two main interpretations of that. Um, uh, Felix and Drusilla's life did not reflect righteousness, did not reflect self-control. Their marriage was a violation of so many um, uh, lives there as they, were, they came together uh, based on lust. And they were both going to be facing the coming judgment. But as I think John Stott rightly points out, you can view these things, um, righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment as three tenses of salvation. Past, de- someone is declared righteous before God through faith in Christ. And present, self-control, one of the major aspects of sanctification, ongoing growth in grace. And then finally, coming judgment. The glory that awaits those whose judgment has already fallen now on Christ by faith. We saw last week where Felix, in response to this, was not angry, but rather he's alarmed. Because if Paul had just presented him with a moral duty list, do this, don't do that, the governor probably would have been angry. Who are you to tell me what to do? But rather he is alarmed because the gospel that Paul is preaching presents a God more holy than traditional religion and also more loving than traditional religion. It is indeed good news that in one sense it's out of this world because it comes into this world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's look how last week's end text ended. Look with me at verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's talk about favors for a moment. Asking for favors and doing favors. Now, there's the innocent kind of asking for a favor. The other day I was asked, could you do me a favor and get the aluminum foil off the shelf? I happen to be a little bit taller than the person that was asking me. And so I was happy to do a favor. But, you know, it could have been just, hey, could you get, would you please get the um, aluminum foil off the shelf? But no, it was, it was could you do me a favor? And, and I, uh, amazingly, my response at the moment was, sure, I'd be glad to. I can't say that that's always my response, but you guys, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Um, However, I'm not thinking so much about the innocent aspects of little favors, but rather the transactional nature of the way the world seems to work. You do this, and I'll do that. We've heard it in recent years, quid pro quo, a favor or advantage granted or expected in return for something. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And often, that kind of transactional favor, quid pro quo, is at the expense of justice. It's immoral, or it's unethical, or it's illegal. We, we, we knew a few years ago of world leaders getting together and one saying, I'd like you to do us a favor, though. Now, that may help be how the world works, but we'll see, and we'll see that in today's text, that is indeed how the world works. However, it's not who God is and how God works. Peter says it very clearly in his first letter, God judges impartially. Paul says 
Or uh, we read in Acts 10 that God shows no partiality. And Paul picks it up in Romans and Galatians. God shows no partiality. In other words, God is not on the business of asking for favors, doing favors. Nor is this how God has designed the world to work. In one of the minor prophets, Micah, many of us know this verse, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I am convinced that if that verse were in the windshield of my life, if that verse was on the glasses through which I see everything, it would be a much better place, wouldn't it? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But that's not what we'll see in today's text. What we will see is justice not being done, uh, kindness uh, not being loved, and really no one but one person walking humbly with God. So we're going to open up and explore today's text by considering, first, the Jews asking for a favor, Festus, the Roman governor, wanting to do a favor, and Paul continuing to trust God, the Jews asking for a favor, the Roman governor wanting to do a favor, and Paul continuing to trust God. Let's look at this first section, asking for a favor. Uh, Join with me as I read verses 1 through 5. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. We see the Jews wanted a favor, and so they asked for a favor. Now, who is Festus? He's the new governor. He succeeds Felix, rules from about 59 to 61 AD. Little is known about him other than he was less brutal than those who came before him and those who came after him. He had just come into his, the province of Judea. The, he was going to serve as the Roman governor in that long line of uh, governors, one of whom was Pilate. And we saw last week, one was Felix. And shortly after arriving in the civil capital on the coast, Caesarea, he goes to the, to the capital of the Jews, the, the religious capital, uh, Jerusalem. And you can see that he's beginning his reign or his rule or his administration kind of being wise and efficient. He he knows that he's inherited some problems from Felix, and so he's going to go to Jerusalem to deal with it. There's an unresolved case. The case has not been closed. He wants to, to get on with things, and so he goes to Jerusalem. Now, 
the Jews, we read, still have a case against Paul. Can you believe it? Two years have passed and they haven't forgotten. They're still plotting, still planning a way to eliminate him. Now, they want a change of venue. They want a change in the location where a trial will be held. Now, often it's the the defense that wants a change of venue because my client can't get a fair hearing, a fair trial in this city. Everybody's against him. So oftentimes the judge will, will change the venue in an attempt to give in particular, the defense, a, 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 a more fair proceeding. But here it's the prosecution that wants a change of venue. They want Paul to be delivered to them. Now this request, Luke the narrator says, it, it masks a deadly purpose because they have a plan to ambush Paul. Remember it was the 40 zealots earlier in chapter 23 that were going to set an ambush, but Paul's nephew got word to it. Paul got word. He worked, the news worked its way from the centurion to the commander. Paul was rescued from that plot. Well, here, they're still wanting to kill him. They're still wanting to eliminate the threat that they see in Paul. Now, persistence and deceit then and now are trademarks of persecutors of the church. They can't win on the truth. So they have to be deceptive. It's the way it was with Jesus. It's the way it is here with Paul. And it's certainly the way it is today as Satan goes after his church, the father of lies. Now, how does Festus respond? He gives a reasoned denial of the request. He he makes his decision not out of some great principle, He makes his decision out of convenience. He basically says, I'm going to only be here in Jerusalem for a few days when I'm headed back. I like my accommodations better by the Mediterranean. The the Roman governor's quarters are nicer. I'll sit there. You can, if you really want to try this man that's been in prison for two years, you come bring some men of authority and let's do the case in Caesarea. That wasn't based on principle. It was based on what was easy for Festus, what was convenient. He was willing to work with them, but by doing this, he was saying, I am not going to be your puppet. You're going to come to me, he says. Now think about that. The Roman governor makes a decision not on principle, but on convenience. And who is orchestrating that? Our sovereign God. Providence, in God's providence, this is once again how God is leading and directing Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. You see, he had gotten out of Jerusalem. God, through this man, Festus, is preventing Paul from going back to Jerusalem. You know, it's hard for all of us to see how the story ends in our lives. Sometimes we can't even see the beginning clearly, and we certainly, in the moment, can't see what God is doing, but we are assured that God is working all things together for good to those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. And if anything is clear, Paul 
has been called according to God's purpose. And he is loved by God. For in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My friends, how God is protecting and caring for Paul here is the same way he cares for us. And one day we'll be able to look back and see all the little decisions along the way where God protected us and provided for us. Now, although the Jews asked Governor Festus for a favor, he did not give them what they wanted. They said, will you do us a favor? In a word, he said, no. At least he didn't give it to them when they asked. However, as we will see, this is not the end of the attempt to give and receive favors. After all, it's the way the world seems to work. You do this for me, And I'll do that for you. So let's now move into seeing not the asking for a favor, but the wanting to do a favor. Uh, Verses 6 through 9. After he stayed, that would be Festus, after Festus stayed among them not for more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Notice the prosecution's case against Paul. Many and serious charges. But none of those serious charges, none of those many charges could be proven. And notice the scene as Luke paints it. Like predators after their prey, they stood around him. And they're charging him with heresy, with sacrilege, with sedition. Before the bar of blind justice, a case built on lies cannot stand. But nonetheless, a case built on lies is often attempted. Now what's the accused defense? Remember last week we saw Paul's defense mainly in the form of a testimony. But here... It's a denial. It's a denial. Um, Has he attacked the law? No. Paul says, I have made no offense against the law of the Jews. And we see that in chapters 22 and 24. The charge of defiling the temple? No, Paul says, I've not made an offense against the temple. To the charge that I've dishonored Caesar... Uh, No offense against Caesar. It's interesting, the Jews know that they really can't get him on religious ground, so they're going to be building the case that Paul is more of a threat to Pax Romana, the the Roman peace and harmony of the day. He's going to be a threat to civil disorder. Paul and Christianity's two defining relationships are exhibited here. As to Judaism... 
Christianity has not betrayed its religious roots. It's in direct continuity with the Old Testament. Ethics and worship, same God, same belief. In other words, Christianity is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament, all that the Hebrew Scriptures looked forward to. And as to the state, Paul is saying, and Christianity as a whole is saying, we're no revolutionary disruptor to the civil order. If anything, people that come to faith in Christ are better citizens. And society is not going to be transformed through somehow imposition of Christian laws, but rather the changing of a life, one heart, one person at a time. So earlier, Paul had had to say, I have a testimony. Here, he's just denying the charges. Now, isn't it crazy these days that um, if you're accused of something and you deny it, you're thought about being guilty right off the bat? Because there are some people's strategies when they're in the midst of doing all kinds of bad stuff just to deny it all. But when we see Paul deny these charges... We know he's innocent. We know he's guilty, no matter what the prosecution says. And we heard in verse 9, the judge asked a question. The judge asked a question because he asked the question because he wants to do the Jews a favor. It's interesting. Not on their timetable, but on his. He may be now realizing, if I can move this Roman prisoner, this Jewish prisoner from Caesarea to Jerusalem, then I can have the Jews, the religious leadership deal with it. It's not going to be in my hands anymore. So he asked a question to the, to the accused. Now, with unsubstantiated charges and a solid defense, what should the judge do? Acquit. Case is closed. You're free to go. But Festus realizes he's in a tight spot. What should he do? You're going to see political expedience gaining the upper hand here because there's a miscarriage of justice in the making. When Festus, instead of being an impartial judge, rather wants to do a favor. And the Jews, I'm sure, would be glad to receive this favor. You know, the symbol for justice, what is that woman with the scales of justice? And she's blindfolded, right? A symbol of impartiality, a symbol of fairness, a symbol of the evidence, not the person making the case. But here with favoritism, it's as if the blindfold of Lady Justice is being taken off. So we've seen that the Jews have asked for a favor. We've also seen that Festus wants to do them a favor. As we will see now, however, a favor will not be given or received because Paul continues to trust God. We begin again in verse 10. To the governor's question, Paul says this, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal 
where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Here we see Paul continuing to trust God. Because you see, trusting God is not a one-time decision. It's ongoing. It's continuing. Paul can't rest on, I trusted God last year or the year before. No, Paul is having to trust God now. And what does trusting God look like? Remember, over the last few weeks, one aspect of Paul's life was trusting God meant being okay with the Romans seizing him, arresting him, protecting him. He was confident that God would be true to his promises to get him to to, uh, Rome. And he, Paul, was not afraid to to, uh, exercise his rights as a Roman citizen. That did not say that Paul was not trusting God. No, it was just one means by which he was trusting God. You see, Paul is now evaluating his present situation and the judicial dealings with the Roman court and the Jews. And he's using his mind. He's using the mind that God gave him. Uh, In one of our articles posted on our website called Applying God's Word to All of Life, The Use and Abuse of the Bible, the author writes this, God does not hand us everything on a plate. He expects us to think, to work, to labor. He does not treat us as children who are to be told everything they must do. He expects us to grow up. Paul doesn't have the instruction sheet in front of him as to what to do. But he is, as it were, loving God with all of his mind. He's using his mind And he may remember this. He may remember that he is to be obedient to the command to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, as we read in Matthew 10. Now, why does Jesus say that? He says this, because I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, Paul is innocent, of course, of the charges made against him. Festus knows this, just like Pilate knowed that about Jesus, but he didn't acquit. Paul is not only innocent, Paul is wise. He's realistic. He's not naive. He's not cynical. He's not going to be taken by surprise. He's anticipating the eventualities. He can see the danger ahead, and he takes steps to avoid it. For the sake of the gospel. Because Paul knows either on the way to Jerusalem he's going to be killed. Or in Jerusalem there is no way to get a fair trial. He knows that he's got to stick it out with the Roman civil courts. He's got to stick it out and he sees what's going on with Festus. 
You see, he sees that the new governor is valuing his political survival more than the claims of justice. And when that happens, he's got to take action. Paul claimed his right as a citizen earlier, remember, not to be flogged, to face his accusers. He, he's appealing now to Caesar that Caesar himself would judge his cause. And so only a wise and timely appeal to Caesar would get out of the jam Paul finds himself in and enables him to continue on to Rome. Now, how does, the respond, how does the governor respond? I believe this catches him a little bit off guard. He turns to his council, some military leaders, some civil servants, and he asks them what, they, what he should do. Because he couldn't either convict or sentence Paul because he would offend Roman justice. It would be a miscarriage of justice. But he realizes he can't release Paul because he fears offending the Jews. He confers with his advisors. He has no alternative but to grant what Paul wishes to appeal to Caesar. Now, asking for and doing favors sure seems to be the way the world works. But it's not how God works. And Paul had learned that firsthand when he met the one to whom all the law and the prophets pointed to. You see, I want to start as we wrap up by asking this question. Is God's relationship with man quid pro quo or not? Is God's relationship with man, if you do this, I'll do that? Now, many people think a relationship with God is quid pro quo. If I do this for God, then he'll be obligated to do that for me. And these people are both right and wrong. Now, I had to think about this for a while because they are right uh, in one sense. God does basically say, do this and live. God entered into man, entered into a covenant of life with man upon a condition, a condition of perfect obedience. So God said, Obey and you will live. Obey me perfectly and fully and you will never die. But we know what happened. The fall of man into sin shattered the ability of man to perfectly obey. So they're right in one sense because they have an understanding of the covenant of life or the covenant of works. But they're wrong in thinking that if I do this good deed today, God will have to do that for me. My friends, this is an unspoken summary of the default religion of man's heart. It's salvation by works. It's a righteousness by what you do. And that's where my heart began. And apart from God's active grace in me, 
That's where my heart wants to go back to. Hey, God, let's make a deal. If I do this for you, will you do that for me? If I give this amount of money, will you make my life easy? God, if I memorize scripture, will you provide me with a spouse? I mean, think about all of us trying to make deals with God. Because man tries to make deals with man, doesn't he? If you do this, I'll do that. But man's relationship with God isn't based on the asking for and the doing of favors, is it? However, it is based on favor. Unmerited favor to those who deserve his wrath. What do I mean? There is one who judges impartially. And there is one who judges justly. God is the governor. He is the judge. And Paul writes to the Romans, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Not Felix. Not Festus. Not anybody else really is the judge. But God is the judge. God's judgment is perfect. It is impartial. God does not show favoritism. But he does show favor. You see, God demonstrates his favor. God shows his favor to anyone who trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's favor is shown to those who repent and believe. You see, it's got to be Jesus because it was at the cross where God shows himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has indeed shown us what is good and God has indeed shown us especially through Jesus Christ who he is and God does justice and God loves mercy and God is with all those who humbly walk with him so my friends after seeing Jews and Romans trying to do favors back and forth to one another. Scratch my back, scratch your back. I'll give you this, you give me that. And instead of that, instead of asking God for a favor or thinking that you can do God a favor, I mean, isn't that crazy? Not only do we ask God for a favor, but sometimes we even think that we're doing God a favor. So instead of that, my friends... Rest in the favor that God bestows. Favor that is upon all of those who trust not in themselves, who look away from themselves and look to another. To those who trust in Jesus. May God be pleased to enable all of us to grow in our obedience and love to him and others as we rest 
under his favor. For a Christian is a person who has the favor of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage in Acts, uh, we are thankful because it, it helps us understand our history. But also it helps us understand how we can move forward in our mission. Father, we thank you for this example of Paul using his mind, being wise to do that which would further the advance of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us individually as families and as a church wisdom to live well, to love well, and to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God in ways that are pleasing to you and in ways that do much good to people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.